Uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation today, the book of Revelation, not book of Revelations. It's one revelation, not two or three or four, just one. And uh, that'll be on page 1028, 1028, if you need a pew Bible that should be near you there. Uh, speaking of uh, Brian Fisher, um, he will be sharing another gift of us in a couple weeks. He's going to be preaching here. And so it'll be nice to have him share a different aspect of his gift. And, and uh, if you're like me or, you know, there's just a few people that have these kind of talents, just don't be jealous. The Lord's given you what he's given you. We can't all be Brian, AJ, and Jason, you know. I mean, we just can't be that. So, but the Lord has made us who we are. Now, the other morning, uh, we were at the men's Bible study. And A.J. opened up in prayer, and I thought his prayer was very fascinating. He said, Lord, so this was January 2nd, and he said, Lord, thank you for a new year. It doesn't seem like it's new because it seems like the, you know, it's just the same way as it did a couple days ago, but it's new nonetheless because it's a new year, so thank you. I thought that was interesting. Another friend later that afternoon, an old friend called me and he was talking to me and he says, how did 2019 treat you? And I went, um, I don't know. Uh, I've been too busy looking at 2020. I just, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. And it, so it made me pause and think just a moment. So how interesting it is in, in a new year uh, how we kind of process things. Some of us look back over the year and think about it. Some of us just are living for the day and probably don't think about either end. And some of us are always looking ahead and uh, thinking about things in the future. As a matter of fact, uh, sometimes I look so far ahead in the future, I forget what happened yesterday. I'm not kidding you. It's, it's very interesting to me. But as we come this morning uh, to the Word of God, um, and we continue in our little mini-series, New Beginnings, we're taking stock this, over these uh, messages. We're taking stock um, in, in terms of our spiritual walk with the Lord and how we may get back on track or continue to grow in this new year of 2020, this new decade. And so after uh, we looked at the foundation of the Word last week, we looked at the Bible, the foundation. We were called uh, by the Word to, to be in the Word, to be thinking about the Word. We looked at 2 Timothy. Um, uh, you know, we need to move on and look at another aspect this morning. And it's a central aspect of the Bible. Our love for God in light of His love for us. So let's look at Revelation 2. 1 through 7, and hear from God's Word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, 
which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. May it penetrate our hearts. May it draw us ever closer to you. May it even this morning draw us to remember the love we first had when we came to you. I pray, Father, that this work would do much in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you know that you can spend a lot of time at the beginning of the new year planning for me, right? Consider what I want to do. Uh, do I want to make a career change? Uh, have a baby? Uh, how much money do I want to make? Do I want to move into a new house? Do I want to lose weight? Do I want to make some significant changes? What do I want to do this year? We have all kinds of questions like that. Perhaps the question that we often look over, though, is this question. What would Jesus want me to do? What would Jesus want from me? The book of Revelation opens with the vision of Jesus standing among the churches, His people, and He is pictured in the midst of the church because they are His and He cares for them. He cares so much for them that He has commissioned the Apostle John to write this letter of the things that he hears and he sees and to send it to seven churches in Asia Minor. However, before the body of the visions get underway, John is given a series of seven messages one for each of those churches. And here the Lord is commending them. He is exhorting them and then promising them according to their ways. The first message of this group of seven is to the Ephesian church. And the message to the other churches will follow in this book. Um, and it shows us that He cares about us. He loves us. And we are His. We are not our own. He is actually, really, truly in our presence. He is concerned about who we are, what we're doing, where we're going. So today, as we look at this first message to the church in Ephesus, and I've, as I've given thought to this, I'll probably come back to this book this summer and touch on these other churches. I think it would be good for us to kind of think about it. But, but there's an emphasis here in this, in this particular church that I want us to hear and I want us to refresh, refresh our hearts in. And so what we're going to look at is the problem of great things without love, firstly. The problem of great things without love. And then we're going to look at how we are to remember our first love. How to remember our first love. So the problem of great things without love, it's important. It's important when we come to the Bible to understand what we're reading in context to fully grasp how we may apply its truth to our lives. So let's just think about Ephesus for just a moment. We know quite a bit from the New Testament about the church in Ephesus. In Acts 19, Paul stayed there for at least two and a half years. And he preached every day in the hall of Tyrannus. And he had such an impact on the city that riots broke out. And, 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 and things became uh, uh, very uh, terrible for Paul and his associates at the time. 
Let's just put it that way. But however, the church grew. And because it grew, there was a threat to the worship of the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And you know what happens when you threaten the idols. You threaten the idol makers. And when you threaten the idol makers, you threaten their money. And that was the issue. Remember, most of the time, it goes back to money. If it doesn't go to money, it goes to power. But most of the time, it goes back to money. Follow the money trail, always. Later, after Paul left, he was in uh, imprisonment in Rome, and he gives a little more insight into the people there in his letter to the Ephesians. Maybe you've read it. It's in the New Testament. It is obvious that he is writing to mature believers and points out that he has continued to hear, get this, of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints. That was their reputation. It was stellar. At some point, Paul, after um, Timothy was put in charge as pastor in Ephesus, uh, wrote two more letters there, and specifically to Timothy. And you get insights again into the life of the church there because Paul is writing to Timothy concerning the church in Ephesus. And so last week, I didn't put this together. I mean, I kind of planned these sermons, but I didn't put this close connection together. It's amazing how the Lord does that. But last week, we read 2 Timothy. And one of the real concerns for the church was false teaching. They'd begun to creep in. And so it was real, and they needed to desperately stand firm in the Word of God. You'll see how that ties in to the church that John writes to that's a generation perhaps later. Finally, according to tradition, the Apostle John replaced Timothy toward the end of the first century, sometime uh, as the leader of the Ephesian church. Many think that he addressed the letters of 1 John to them. However, at this point, we come to the message from Jesus. This message is directly from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. John is in exile, and uh, the truth has been given to him, and, and he is writing it down. He's going to put it in this one book of Revelation along with the other messages, and then they're going to go to these seven churches so that all the churches can read what has been said. So look again with me to verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. There is much to commend here. There is much to commend to this beloved people. They are, first of all, hardworking. They're a hardworking church. Verse 2 says, I know your works, your toil. The word toil here is to be read as trouble. They've had trouble. Jesus knew how they proverbially took the trouble. They were diligent in their effort to do gospel work well. Uh, this is an active church. You could say it's a busy church, a serving church, a ministry-minded church. John Stott says... One may imagine that its members were fully occupied entertaining the lonely, nursing the sick, teaching the young, visiting the aged. It was a veritable beehive of industry. Their toil was famous. Every member was doing something for Christ. Secondly, 
they had endured. You can imagine the diligent and, and, and the diligence and effort that they had uh, put into the fierce opposition that they had faced. Uh, for many reasons, Ephesus was not, not an easy place to live for Jesus. But he still says of them, I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Thirdly, they were doctrinally sound. They were orthodox. They were paying attention to their doctrine. If you look back at verse 2, they could not bear with those evil people, but have tested those who called themselves apostles and are, and, and, and are not found to, and are found to be false. And so as you look at verse 6, he says, Yet this I have for you. I, I have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what we see here overall is just this encouragement that they have stood doctrinally sound, that they have dug into the Word, just like Paul had, had challenged them to in 2 Timothy. They were in the Word. They, were, they, were, they understood it. it. It was part of them. They grew in this doctrinal aspect, and they were orthodox. And so when you lay all these things out, what you see is this, that everything that is commended here is so encouraging. It is amazing to me that you see the connection from the letter last week here in history. Years later, you see the connection. They had been dedicated to the Word. They were hard at gospel work. They were patient and enduring hardship. They weren't growing wearily. They were deeply committed. The early church, Father Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, reported that this was a church so well taught in the gospel that no unorthodox sect could gain a hearing among its members. It's incredible. And so I wonder this morning, what would Christ commend to us? What would He commend to us? If all of a sudden next week you had a letter from Jesus written to the church at Christ Community Church in Frisco, how would he commend us? How would he say, well done, my good and faithful servants? As for the church at Ephesus, and I want you to think about the list here. I want you to have that list in mind. As for the church in Ephesus, despite all these good things, Verse 4 is right there. Look at verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In the midst of doing really wonderful things, they had lost their first love. And here Jesus is warning them. He is calling them back. So it's important that we therefore remember our first love. So let's look at that as our second point. Remember our first love. So as I'm, as I'm reading this passage, you know, I'm going through certain things in my mind. I, you know, that song by the Righteous Brothers comes through my mind, you know. You've lost that love and feeling, you know. Now, as soon as that comes through, I realize that's trivial compared to this. This is real. This is, this is, this is, this is deep. This is not about some... You know, feeling necessarily. It's much deeper than that. And so the next thing I think about then is, is what exactly 
is the love that they have abandoned. Now, here's where it gets fun when you get into all the commentaries, okay? It's clear that in the text that, that whatever it is that is a loss of love or uh, the love of, of something, it has to be one of several things, whatever that is. It has to be either the loss of the love for God, the loss uh, for love for one another, Or maybe it is the loss of love for mankind in general. In other words, they weren't sharing their faith like they used to. Now here's the thing. It's interesting. As you read the commentaries, they they all disagree. And I found it very interesting that most of the newer commentators lean toward it's about loving one another and, and, and also loving the culture. And I wonder if a culture has had impact on them in that. Because all the older guys say it's all about they lost their love for the Lord Jesus. I just find that fascinating. And it's just one of those things that you should know as you're reading books to always be looking back to those of the past to see kind of how they wrestle through this. And actually in the language, it could really be any of these. But I have come to agree with those who... Who, who say that it is they have lost love for the Lord Jesus Himself. And I think that there's several things that they point to that really point that out. The first one is this. Jesus has already given the answer to this when He summarized the law. Do you remember that? In Matthew 22, He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, the greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Stott, John Stott, yet gives another analogy that points strongly to this. He says that God often likened Israel to his bride and himself uh, to her husband. He had set his love upon her. He pledged this loyalty to her and entered into a covenant with her. She became unfaithful, however, and she forsook her true husband. And so therefore, Jeremiah proclaims this. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you have followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And there are many, many, many other verses like that throughout the prophets specifically that call Israel back as as God's bride. And so now that we understand, you know, love and, and, and really what's going on here, because you see, if you lose your love for Jesus, then the other things will follow suit. So they don't necessarily count each other out. If you love your love, if you love lose your love for Jesus, you'll lose your love for one another. You'll definitely lose your love for the lost. So how did this happen? How does this occur? How does one lose their first love? Well, we intuitively know that there is something in human beings which operates like a door. It's like doors to our hearts. And they must be open if our souls are to touch each other. Husband and wife, even intimate friends, must work at keeping the doors open. The flame of love growing, uh, glowing brightly. Would it not be the same thing as it applies to our Lord. You may remember what it was like when you first loved the Lord. Um, a couple of weeks ago when Jeff was sharing his testimony, it really got me thinking about my early years when I first became a Christian. 
I don't remember the exact time and, and, and place. That's not something that, that I really gave much thought to. It, to me, it was, it was kind of a process. And what I do remember is it was the summer. And what I do remember is I was in a Baptist church in the mountains of North Carolina. And they had stained glass windows. And I remember in the evening sun, the sun would pierce through those windows. And I remember, you know, just thinking as I was going along, that's really interesting. They tell the story of the Bible through here. That's, that's interesting. And I remember hearing about this Jesus. And then the youth pastor asked me, why are you holding back from following the Lord? I can tell what's going on in your heart. I can read you like a book. I gave my heart to the Lord. You know what I did? I went the very next Monday to buy a Bible. I didn't have a Bible. I walked into the, the Bible store. A lady looked at me and she said, um, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm here to buy a Bible. It's way before Amazon, I'm just telling you. I said, I want a Bible. And she said, what kind of Bible do you want? And I'm like, there's more than one? <laughs> really? Oh, yes, there's all kinds of translations. Really? There's all kinds of study Bibles. What would you like? I'm like, I have no idea. I just need a Bible. What church do you go to? I told her, she goes, I'm just going to give you one of these King James Bibles. So she gave me one. I looked at it. I said, that's great. And then I purchased it. And I drove away. And I had my very own first Bible. I remember listening to Christian music for the first time. Some of that 80s Christian music was horrible. But it talked about Jesus. The first radio preachers I ever listened to was Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll, I always said, discipled me in a lot of ways. I told him that when I met him a couple years ago at one of the concerts. I shook his hand and I said, Chuck, or I didn't say Chuck. <laughs> I said, Pastor Swindoll, you, you discipled me when I was a young man. Because I used to listen to the radio in uh, North Carolina, in western North Carolina. And he just shook his head. Praise the Lord, you know. I remember all that. I remember wanting to memorize verses. Just wanting to hear those radio preachers. I, I had this old car. The company I worked for I had this old car. And the radio would just cut out every once in a while. And it would lead me back to my old sinful days. I'd start cursing at it because the preacher stopped, you know, preaching. Because it just stopped. <laughs> Do you remember what it was like when you first loved Jesus? What happens? What happens? Slowly over time, we begin to close our hearts to the Lord and open it up to other things. You know, things just in the world. When I say the world, I'm not necessarily talking about bad things. It's maybe the, the Scripture would talk about that. Um, but, you know, maybe the American dream. What is the American dream? Well, you fight to get through college, and you fight to get a job, and, and then you find a wife, and then you have kids, and then you struggle to move up your career ladder so that you can, you, can pray, you can pay for those kids going to college. 
And you collect more and more stuff along the way. And so you have to buy a bigger home to put all that stuff in. And, and then you work to get your kids through college because you want the best for them. And, and so you do that. And then you start thinking about retirement. And you get hot on retirement. And so that you can be done with work and all that and do what you finally want to do, right? All the while, you may attend church. Give to the church, serve the church, and have your studies and daily Bible readings and prayer. Am I speaking to anybody here today? All the while, though, while many of these things would be considered good and appropriate, and I would even say some are very good, the doors of our hearts are apt to close to the Lord. Slowly then, we can easily close our hearts to His people as well. We may even forget the lost world that's out there that need to hear about His Son. But we're just too busy playing the American dream game. We may even say we love the Lord. But do we love Him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and all of our strengths. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do we strive to love him in that way? To put to death the sin that's in our own hearts. John 10, 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He's not telling you that you have to hate your mother and father. He's making a contrast here to show you how much His desire is for you to love Him. Whoever loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, we can be the kings and queens of excuses. We're too busy, too consumed, uh, too many important things to do, too many places to go, stuff to read, articles to read, social media to ingest. There's just one more article I need to read. Just one more. For what? What do we live for? More importantly, what do we truly love? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, No matter how gifted, no matter how knowledgeable, no matter how influential we are without love, we're nothing. And we gain nothing. The very survival of the church Depends upon love. And this is a letter. A warning to those who can detect false doctrine from a mile away. They can smell it. Oh, I see it right there. I'm going to comment on it on Facebook. But their hearts do not beat true with love. The love that God has shown them in the gospel. In other words, it's for Presbyterians like us exactly who it's for. It is so serious in the Ephesian church that Jesus threatens to remove her lampstand if she does not repent and return to her first love. The church has no light in the world without love. The very survival, again, of the church depends upon love. So he says in Revelation 2.5, remember, repent, resume. In other words, remember the love that you've had. 
Repent where you've, you've turned away and resume and do the works that you did at first. Here we see that he's extending his loving grace as he always has throughout the scripture to his church. And what he's saying is this, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, my love. Come, change your attitude. Change your behavior. Don't you remember what it was like when you first loved me? Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Listen. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and has seated us us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. John makes it clear previously in 1 John 4 that we love because He first loved us. Charles Spurgeon says, in light of these truths, those who have lost their first love must compare their present with their former state and consider how much better it was with them then than now. How much peace, strength, purity, and pleasure they have lost by leaving their first love. How much more comfortably they could lie down and sleep at night. How much more cheerfully they could wake in the morning how much better they could bear afflictions and how much more becomingly they could enjoy the favors of God's hand, how much easier the thoughts of death were to them and how much stronger their desires and hopes of heaven. Have we lost our first love? Are we coasting? Are we coasting as Christians? Is it possible that you're committed, that you're orthodox and even diligent, but your first love has grown cold? If so, brothers and sisters in Christ, what the Lord says is, come to me, my love. Come to me, repent, turn back and love me once as you did before. Endeavor to revive and to recover the first zeal and the tenderness and the seriousness of your relationship with Him. Pray earnestly, watch diligently as you once did when you first set out in the ways of Jesus. What's interesting here is that he ends this in a promise for those who remember and repent and resume. Look in verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And what he does is he holds out to us that hope, that hope of heaven, that hope of all things being made new, that hope of no more tears, that hope of no more pain of new bodies. He holds out that to us and he says, come to me, my love. This is what I have in store for you. Now I want to ask you a question. Is there anything you could ever want or desire that is better than that? Think about it. 
I want you to think about this. I'm going to put it this way. As I said last night in the email that I sent out about Ron, he's not gone forever. He's with the Lord. You know what that means? It means we're going to be with him again. That means that all those people who died before you that are in Christ Jesus, you're going to see again. Loved ones that died way too early. Babies that you lost. Dear loved ones that you are sad not to see their faces and hear their voices. And just think of all the others that are out there that have not heard yet who need to. Will we turn our hearts to love Him? This year, our theme verse is really based upon this. The love of the Lord. So there's going to be several times throughout the year I've kind of planned it into the calendar that I'm going to come back to this topic of the love of the Lord. And what I want you to do is I want you to memorize this verse. Song of Solomon 6, 3. Out of Song of Solomon, right? The great, you know, love affair book of the Bible. It says this. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Now, we know that that, and I believe that that letter is written there to show us, you know, uh, two things. I believe it shows us an incredible love story between a man and a woman. I do. But at the same time, I believe it also shows us the love story between God and His people. God and His people are just woven through that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful poetry. And so this year, our theme verse is going to be, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And what I want you to do in memorizing that and in thinking about that is this. I want you to realize that you are the Lord's and that He loves you. He loved you first. Even though you were a sinner, He called you to be His love. And then I want you to think that my beloved is mine. Do you love him? Come away. Come away with me, my love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Let us be drawn to to love you more deeply. Let us, um, as, as Jesus said, hunger and thirst for righteousness. But turn that hunger and thirst for righteousness into hunger and thirst for you, our great God. Let us remember our first love. Let us then in turn, in our own way, be thoughtful in thinking about how we need to repent and return to you. Oh, heaven is waiting, Lord. Heaven is waiting. Even now, there are wars and rumors of wars. And you said all that would be. And it would all be birth pains before your return. I have no idea where that will be next week, the next minute, the next year, the next thousand years. I have no idea. No one does. 
but regardless, all of us in this room will be gone within 110 years from now. All of us. And so, Father, I pray that we would remember our first love and prepare our hearts for that great banquet feast. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.